Welcome to Double Truck Stories, the home to some of the best features, investigations, and character portraits from across ESPN. I'm Mike Philbrick, your host for the Double Truck Stories podcast. Remember to subscribe to Double Truck Stories podcast on the ESPN app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For 25 years, comedian Gary Shandling hosted a weekly pickup basketball game at his house in Brentwood. The rules were simple. No talking shop and no talking about it afterwards. It was the best and worst kept secret in Hollywood until Shandling's untimely death in 2016. Now the game stands as a testament to how one person was able to take a simple game and build a devoted community around it. Stick around after the story for my conversation with ESPN's Anna Peel as we talk about how only in the land of make-believe can a made-up family be the recipe for happiness. Now we present Fight Club with better jokes inside Gary Shandling's secret pickup game by Anna Peel. Fight Club with better jokes inside Gary Shandling's secret pickup game by Anna Peel. During his 40-year comedy career, Gary Shandling created two of the most iconic and influential TV shows of all time. But instead of following It's Gary Shandling's Show and The Larry Sanders Show with another television masterpiece, Shandling worked on something else, a pickup basketball game. During the 25-year run of the weekly Sunday game, until Shandling's death at age 66 in 2016, it was attended by celebrities such as Sarah Silverman, Sasha Baron Cohen, Will Ferrell, Brad Pitt, Adam Sandler, and Judd Apatow who directed the recent HBO documentary, The Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling. But Shandling's was not a Hollywood game. Participants weren't allowed to network there or talk about it afterward. It was Fight Club with better jokes, says Shandling's writing partner, Suli McCullough. The players respected this to protect the singular refuge Shandling carefully constructed. Those Sundays yielded friendships that are responsible for some of the best television and film of the past 20 years. As director Alex Rickenback says, this group of people found a little family in Los Angeles because we all have the same comedy dad. This is the story, told by the players, of how Shandling's generosity, drive, and anxiety led to a three-decade basketball game and the next generation of comedy. Chris Hinchy, co-founder of Funny or Die. I just remember my mom saying, don't be an a-hole so you get invited back to things. Not that you were that fearful, but Gary would occasionally go to Hawaii for four weeks and not say anything. You'd go, what happened? And you'd call somebody like Wayne Fetterman, the comedian who was commissioner of the game, on Sunday and casually be like, what are you guys doing today? And find out that Gary's in Hawaii. And when you knew Gary was in Hawaii, you'd say to someone who didn't, why weren't you there Sunday? Adam McKay director of Anchorman and The Big Short. Will Farrell and I were constantly clapping our hands, saying, God damn it, Sarah, you gotta come around that pick. The whole bit was just to yell and be obnoxious, getting fake pissed about something. Suli McCullough, writer on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. Sarah Silverman would take the air out of you. I did some move and made a shot. Sarah was like, yeah, great, no smile to it. I love the no smile. It was a way of S-talking me in a way that I had never been S-talked. Whenever Hinchy got a bucket, he would just say under his breath, Freight Train. Alex Rickenback, director of Ibiza. Did Hinchy tell you he called himself the Arclight because he has the best screens in Hollywood? Jim Gray, sportscaster. 
If I missed a shot, Gary would rush over to me like I would at the end of a game to John Stockton or to Michael Jordan and over-dramatize it the way NBA reporters do to make it seem like it was the biggest thing ever. And I would say the stuff that I'm sure the players who were talking to me on the court wanted to say. Yeah, the whole team is convening tonight. They're jumping off the Brooklyn Bridge. Joining me now is ESPN's Anna Peel. Anna, thank you for taking the time. Thanks so much for having me. So this, um, my first question, I guess I have for you about this great story is, you know, the number one rule about Fight Club is. Don't talk about Fight Club. Don't talk about Fight Club. Mm -hmm. So if the number one rule is don't talk about Fight Club, and this was sort of the Fight Club of basketball games, how did you find out about this story? So I was doing uh, a story about Jeff Goldblum for GQ, and one of the people I interviewed was Jeff's dear friend, Sarah Silverman. And I said, how did you meet Jeff? And she was like, oh, you know, I, I was 23 or 24. And I was like, oh, but like, where did you meet him? What was going on? She's like, oh, we were at Gary Shandling's house. And I was like, oh, well, I know you were on Larry Sanders, but why was Jeff there? And she was like, oh, well, there was a pickup game going on. And she tried to kind of move on. And I was like, wait, wait, wait tell me more about this pickup game at Gary Shandling's house. Uh, and then, yeah, it that was all she would say about it. But that was the kernel. Was it like, uh oh, like I, was, I, I said too much and she ran out of the room? Well, I was like, who else was there? And she's like, I don't know. I'm not <laughs> telling you anything else. And it's um, did it get to the point where um, I guess the story was being written where there was like a domino effect where. This person wouldn't talk to you about this person, but if so-and-so talked and you said, well, I just heard from so-and-so. So in that thought process there, who was the biggest domino to fall? Oh, my gosh. Well, it started out and I went out to uh, – I approach it the way I would approach a normal story like Jeff Goldblum where I just – you know, I start writing to people and I'm like, hey, you know, we're doing this story honoring and celebrating – you know, Jeff's career in life or whatever. Um, so I started out that way and nobody wrote me back. <laughs> and I was like, wait a second. Why aren't people excited about this thing celebrating Gary Shandling? Fight Club Rules. Fight Club Rules. Um, and then Wayne Fetterman, the comedian and actor who was the commissioner of the game and picked the teams, uh, was like, let me talk to you on the phone. And I was like, oh, like, what's, what time is it good for the interview? And I was like, he's like, it's not an interview. Ooh, okay. We're, he was interviewing me. Yeah. He was, so I talked to him and he was like asking me about my approach and why I wanted to do it and what my plan was. And he was like, okay, well, if you're going to do this, you need to talk to Gary's best friend, Bruce Grayson, who also did his hair and makeup. Mm -hmm. And you need to talk to Bill Isaacson, who's the executor of Gary's estate. So I reached out to them and I reached out to, uh, Gary's publicist. And then once I got their blessing, I was, you know, I asked them to text or whatever, call, talk amongst themselves, decide. And I was like, I'm open to talking to anybody about this and answering any questions that they have and like letting them know that I want to do this the right way. And then I think it's really important to talk to everybody so that I tell the story because they're the only people who know right, the story. Exactly. Um, so I was puttering along and there were a few people who just aren't the kind of people who would check in. Mm -hmm. Like Kevin Nealon is just like, oh, yeah, of course I'll talk about my friend Gary. Kathy Griffin, who didn't play but went to the Memorial game, was like, yeah, I'd love to talk to you. Um, but then I really stalled out. Um, and then Zach Schiller, who is a producer who's worked with – he worked with Gary on um, What Planet Are You From? And he worked with Adam Sandler and Funny uh, – I think he worked with Funny or Die too. Mm -hmm. Um but he was like, let me talk to you. So we talked 
for like an hour. And then he's like, all right, I'm going to talk to the guys. Like, I think you're kind of coming at this from the right place. And then the floodgates opened. And then people just started saying like, okay, well, I knew that if you were going to do this, you had to do it the right way. And so I had to make sure you were going to do it the right way. And so I had to tell the real story. Did you find that, to your point, they talk about the real story where they, the respect they had for Gary Shandling was such that, okay, I'll respect your wishes. I won't talk about the game. Like I'll get invited. I want to come back. So I won't talk about it. But after he passed away, was one of the uh, motivations to talk about the game because it got to the point where, you know, it seemed that not that he was Gary Shandling was like this in the tabloids, like big jerk that no one liked, but it seemed that this, this was a version of Gary Shandling that they all experienced as far as like the way you mentioned the times where he helped people uh, with careers that not many people knew. So more like, we understand that you never want us to talk about this game, but out of our immense respect for you, we sort of want everyone to know who you really were. I think that's exactly right. And while the game was going on and Gary was alive, the rules about not talking about it were so strictly enforced that one comedian went on Howard Stern and talked about the game and he got kicked out. <laughs> like literally it was like, do not talk about this game because Gary wanted everyone to feel comfortable there and he just wanted people to feel unobserved. Although of course they were being observed by Gary and being policed by each other to kind right. of keep the vibes right. But um, yeah, I think that, I think it was really hard for them to decide whether or not this story should be told and whether Gary would want it to be told. Mm-hmm. Um, and <laughs> Zach Scheller said that he ran into David Duchovny at a restaurant and David was like, hey, are you talking to Anna from ESPN? And he's like, yeah, I'm going to. And David was like, I mean, it's cool now because Gary's dead, right? Like we're allowed to talk about it now. And Zach was like, well, like if it's not, I'm sure he'll like come back and haunt us and then we'll know we shouldn't have talked about it. Right. But is um, but can you talk more about the people that were so willing to talk to you? There were some, some great anecdotes that you had, and I'm sure you have others um, that didn't make it, but here was a guy that seemed that like there's, you see like this person in this role, in this position, but you don't hear like, well, you know, Gary was the guy on the phone, like telling him what to say and what to do in the interview, and he was the one that got on the job interview to begin with and whatnot. He seemed like this was a guy that like was so willing to do everything for anyone. Or as you said, unless you were like a lawyer, an agent, then he wouldn't help you at all. Yeah. But if you were a talent person, like a, a creator of such, and you had his ear and he would be picking up the phone for you. Absolutely. I mean, people talked about, they're like, he basically spent all his time either on the phone. People would talk about getting calls from him at 3 a.m. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, it's Gary. You know, and they do that. It's like, hey, it's Gary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everyone had their impression. <laughs> yeah, everyone had their impression. And I mean, he... I don't know. I think it was really important to him to help people. And, you know, I think Alex Rickenbach said, like, the oh, no, uh, Jesse Bradford said, like, he looked at his success and said, like, what's the best thing I can do with this? And it's like, it's to help others. Right. And he would go, he would famously go and look at people's, like, watch people's films, you know, Ben Stiller and Judd Apatow and Adam McKay, like, all these incredible people. And he would, and Jay Roach, and then he would give them notes and they would make changes um, but he really had stopped working on his own stuff after what planet are you from? Mm-hmm. Uh, the Mike Nichols film, um, which I mean, it's just, just crazy story. Um, that Zach Scheller's father 
was one of his lawyers during the Brad Gray case. Brad Gray was his uh, representative, and he Gary sued him and wound up winning $10 million in a lawsuit. It turned out that he... Brad Gray had hired George Pelicanos to tap his phones. Like it, it was nuts. Um, and so Zach's father was one of his lawyers, and then Zach was his assistant on What Planet Are You From? And so they would shoot hoops like while Gary was trying to learn his lines. Mm-hmm. And Gary had a very organic process where like he wanted to do a million takes, he wanted to try things different ways, and he just wanted he wanted to be improvisational. And Mike Nichols was really old school, and he felt like Gary was challenging him. Mm-hmm. And it was just like crazy like you know one time gary like messed up a take and said you know he said cut 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 and then mike uh grabbed the bullhorn and he said no one yells can cut in the set of my movies except for me <laughs> and then mike broke his foot he was wheelchair bound and like things degraded to the point where like gary was cut out of the movie poster and it was just like the crotch area and then there was a wilted flower like where his penis like what like it was just the worst experience and after that he you know besides for like a few hosting things and some stand-up he really just worked on other people's projects and helped them and mentored them and got their stuff it's interesting because uh when you look at his career he started out as a writer and as you know and being part of like knowing that industry if you Getting a writing job on a TV show, while maybe it isn't the most glamorous thing in the world, like you're going to pay your bills. You're going to do pretty well. And because he kind of went that way and then into comedy, he took a little bit of heat for like not struggling as much as like the guys, like four guys to a one bedroom apartment, like doing stand up. Sorry, he was so successful. Exactly. But it seems that, (laughs) but in the end, it's almost like I, when I was reading about that, it, it seemed that it was. I kept going back to what like the actor, the comedian uh, Kevin Pollack always says is you may think what we do is glamorous, but we're literally very well paid temps, meaning like we're going from temp job to temp job to temp job. And it seemed that that was something that was that paranoia and that insecurity, which clearly was part of Gary's whole stand up career, was so sort of ingrained in him. He was like, that's what I, I'm just going to make sure I'm going to see if I can just lower that paranoia yeah. with as many friends as I can. I think that he I mean, that was a situation that spiraled out of his control. And his house was obviously a place where he had a great deal of control. Mm-hmm. And he he chose who would be there. You know, he would really like vet the people. You know, sometimes you could, someone could vouch for someone. They'd bring them and then the guys would police it themselves. Um, Chris Henchy brought somebody and that guy wound up dating another player's ex-girlfriend. And so he's like, he's like, you can't, he told him you can't come anymore. Gary doesn't need the drama. Like the guys were so concerned about keeping the vibrate and keeping Gary happy. And I mean, Gary was such a perfectionist in his work. And I think he brought that same ethos to the game, but instead of stressing him out and like depleting him, it, fulfilled him and it made him happy i think i like when you told the as far as the immaturity and like the mind games of these adults who are professionals in their field that we all make them millionaires for it i love the anecdote you had about henshi where he would find out from the commissioner what's going on with the game and then you're like oh gary went to hawaii for like a month and so then he would find other people that were part of the game and say dude why weren't you there last week (laughs) 
just to make everyone feel like this is supposed to be a, a vehicle to make you feel less paranoid and safe in mm-hmm. Hollywood. But let's try to use that to just literally destroy that for everybody. Well, it's a pickup game. There has to be a little bit of shit talking. Yes, agreed. But um, as you completed this story and it's sort of like spread a little, have you heard, has there been any follow-up or have you, like what kind of reception have you got from it since it kind of went out there? Um, From the players or from? Or from anybody, like just, have you heard from anybody, like any follow-up or anything? I mean, the, I, I think it's tricky with something like this because the story was so much more expansive than it could have been on the page. Like there are, you know, and- it was focused on the game. It's an mm-hmm. ESPN story. It's focused on a basketball game. And so there's there's a lot that I think led to the game and there's a lot that was about the game but that wasn't the game itself, like just them hanging out or right. like Gary's Buddhism, which was a huge part of his, weirdly, this pickup game, like being present. Um And like people w- would say that, you know, you'd go into the house to hang out after the game and monks would just wander out and they'd be like, oh, <laughs> Why? Why is there a monk there? And Gary's like, "Oh, they're always there." <laughs> like um, Sully McCullough, who was working on a series with Gary about based on his diaries, said that one day they were they just had writer's block. They just like were stuck and they couldn't do it. And so mm-hmm. they went to the driveway and they started shooting hoops and they were missing like every single time, just bouncing off the backboard. And then eventually they just became present enough that they just started going in. And the going and there was draining them. And then it was like, okay, like now we can write. We've like unblocked ourselves. We've made ourselves present. Um, Gary was actually, I mean, he was a devout Buddhist. Mm-hmm. Um, he was friends with Thich Nhat Hanh, who's mm-hmm. a Zen master of Buddhism. And one of his disciples, you know, I was like, oh, so how did you, <laughs> how can a pickup basketball game represent Buddhism? or the principles of Buddhism, the way it seemed to, to Gary. And he said that uh, every moment of your life, like whether it's work or your personal relationships or a pickup game, mm-hmm. has to be approached with the same quality of loving attention. And so I think that Gary really felt that. And like the people who were part of the game, you know, some of them were huge stars, you know, like, Brad Pitt came one time mm-hmm. and like, you know, like Will Ferrell and Adam Sandler and, all, and Sarah Silverman, all these like incredibly huge names and famous people. But there were people there who, you know, it's like a lawyer or like a comedy writer who's not very well known. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Pete Berg, who co-owned a boxing gym with Gary and Sam Which Monica. I thought to be – when you talk about <laughs> – the, this Buddhist faith. I'm like, wait, where does the boxing part come? They would that? they would bring the monks to the gym, and you know they'd be playing <laughs> Kanye's monster. It's like I'm a motherfucking monster, and Peter Berg would be like, God, put on some Bob Seger. The monks don't need to hear this. Well, do you think those bo- monks were like, listen, we've been praying for 20 years. I've been waiting to take a shot at that guy. I mean, I, I don't know, but <laughs> I do know that Gary, like, I mean, he was like the monk's monk, like. Mm-hmm. You'd see a monk and you'd be looking for a lord and they'd be like, what, like, what's going on with him? And Gary's like, he's going through some stuff. Like, they would, these, you know, they would open up to him. Like, he, I, I don't know, maybe he, the same way that he was for, like, all his comedy friends. Mm-hmm. Like, I think he was like that for the monks too, which is crazy. It seemed, when well, you said though, um, you know, the love and attention, like, like in the, the Buddhist faith and there seems to be a balance in this game between, um, you know, Bill Maher, as you mentioned, says, like, listen, find another game. Mm-hmm. Like, if you're, you know, calling three seconds and 
you know, all these, like if you're taking it too seriously, but then obviously it's serious enough that I mean, those guys wanted to win. And, you know, at first it was like no big deal, like no big deal, Bob Costas, that you're missing all these shots. And in the end, Gary Shandling's like, do not pass from the ball under any circumstances <laughs> whatsoever. But, so there's a competitive nature, but it's almost like that's part of, was that part of the vetting? Like, is this guy going to play the game, but not like throw elbows and, you were. You know, I think allowed to throw elbows. I, one of the rules that you're not allowed to like call fouls all the time. You weren't allowed to break up the flow of the game. But he wanted you to have. He, I think he saw uh, like a creative drive as coming from the same place as an athletic drive. Um, so Pete Berg talked about him mentoring the boxers in the gym and giving them, you know, financial advice as long as they weren't lawyers or agents. But I think he saw it as coming from the same place, like a need to create, whether it's creating a game and working hard in that way or creating a, a work of art or comedy. So of everything that you were able to put in the story, what would you say is the one little story or piece of information about either the game or Gary that didn't make it that you think you would want somebody to know? Um, I mean – I guess, I, I mean, people, I guess, are aware that he was a practicing Buddhist. You know, Judd Apatow made an incredible documentary um, that aired on HBO called The Zen Diaries of Gary mm-hmm. Shandling. Um, but I guess I didn't realize how much that was a part of the environment that these guys were playing basketball in. Mm-hmm. You know, David Duchovny said that one time Gary invited him to meditate with him uh, and these you know, these monks. And I was like, oh, how'd it go? And he was like, I won. Like, is <laughs> <laughs> really funny. Um, and then, like, uh, he had a Christmas card one year that, like, on the front of the card was this beatific uh, photo of the Dalai Lama just, like, with, like, a little smile mm-hmm. on his lips. And then you open the card and it's a headshot of Gary and making the exact same face. <laughs> like, he just, like... Um, he he loved it, but he didn't take it too seriously. I right. think, which was the point of the game. Sure, um, taking it seriously, but not taking it seriously. And then Al Franken said that when he was running for Senate the first time, uh, Gary called him, and he would often give people advice. This was <laughs> unbidden advice, but he was like, "Okay, I figured out how you can overcome your problem, which is that you're a comedian and not a politician." And I was like, well, that's our biggest problem in the campaign, so hit me. And he said, uh, tell them that the Dalai Lama said that humor is about objectivity. And Al Franken was like, okay, well, um, <laughs> like, A, like, that's kind of a dubious premise. Sure. I don't think that that's true. B, I don't think that that is going to convince the people of Minnesota. Yeah, that, uh, <laughs> hey, listen, going to go to the, the cow field and like, listen really quick. I'm sure you've read this before, but let me, it bears repeating. I mean, yeah, like, I don't know, just his, but he didn't take that. He wasn't like put out that, sure. you know, but that was a thing. And a few people mentioned, uh, I found it interesting. They saw the irony or the symbolism in this as well, that um, people mentioned Gary's house. How did like the beautiful, like hidden walkway in a way to get to this like little treasure basketball court, but that it was unfinished and it was like constantly like Gary was talking about remodeling it. And yet they all found it funny that this was a custom built home by Gary Shandling. Yeah. Yet he wanted to remodel it and it was always planned for renovation. And it seemed that 
what I found was it seemed like that's what this game was, meaning instead of dealing with like blueprints and, you know, zoning bylaws and contractors, like this game was the family that he never finished and Mm -hmm. he could constantly quickly evolve it with a couple emails. It was, I mean, he never married, you know, he never had kids. Um, Alan Zwiebel, who was his writing partner on It's Gary Shandling's show, said that, you know, after he, uh, Gary met uh, Alan's wife, Robin, he said to Alan, you know, like when you met, when you asked Robin to marry you, did you love her or did you just sort of like like her? And then you figured like once you got married, like all that stuff would fall into place. And he was like, no, like she... No, I like loved her, and then we got, got married. Like yeah. he's that like, it works. was an adolescent question, and then you know it was must have been twenty five years later. His son got engaged, and he brought him to the game. And Gary said, "Let me ask you a question. Like when you asked your fiance to marry you, did you love her? Or did you just like her? And you figured it would like you'd figure it out later." And he was like, "Always, I think that he had there was a hesitance to commit to stuff, like whether right. it was actually remodeling the house." Mm-hmm. Or, you know, at the end, like starting a new TV show or something like that, because sure. what if it wasn't as good as it could possibly be? You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, what if, you know, like, what if you marry someone and then it's not the right person? Which is interesting that t- to be that into Buddhism and yet feel that like a lack of commitment or incompletion and things. Well, but Buddhism is about being really present, right? Like, mm-hmm. I guess it's like when you decide to marry someone or when you, like, build a house, that's, mm-hmm. like, a whole thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's, like, forever. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess being comfortable being unsettled with something, you know, I, I don't know. I think that his f- friends brought him, like, that was his home. Like, that mm-hmm. was the, yeah, that was, like, the perfect version of, like, the house that he could live in. Yes. He was just somebody who liked being with other people. Oh, my gosh. This is so great. So, he would go to Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, uh, the way he met Jim Gray was that he would stay at the Four Seasons uh, on the Big Island. Mm-hmm. And so, he, there was a room that he really liked to stay in. And so, he met Jim because Jim was there to get married. And so, Jim opened the door to his suite and Gary was sitting on the bed. He was like, hi, like, Gary Shanley. Yeah. He was like, hi, Jim Gray. He's like, I'm really sorry. Like, I was supposed to leave, but this is sort of like my room, but it was like kind of the bridal suite sure. where Jim was going to stay. And he's like, he's like, I just couldn't get it together to leave. And so they wound up becoming like dear friends. And Jim invited him to the wedding, of course. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I mean, right? Like, it's like he's alone in the bridal suite and he just picks up a friend who's his friend for the rest of his life. And it's interesting because, like, this is all in Hollywood, in a town where those that make it are revered or are jostling to be revered or comparing their how revered they are to other people and, you know, with contract writers and whatnot. But they all seem, no matter what, I mean, they all seem to revere Gary. Yeah. And it seems very unusual for while Gary had advice, like, People, it seems that the people that get revered in that town are revered because, like, they run a studio and they green light your dreams. But the, here's a guy who was revered in an industry where he's like, listen, I'll give you my time mm-hmm. and my attention and my affection. But that's about it. So that seems – that's what I felt overall seems so very rare about this story was when you talk about 
some of these up and comers, sure, but you know, and like unknown comedy writers, but then still like Will Farrell and any list celebrity, like revering Gary just as much as that comedy writer and equally in awe of them, despite what either of them have accomplished. It just seems that that was my big takeaway that he basically created exactly what he was looking to create. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing. It's amazing that he was able to do that in that town. I mean, in a place where people are often like wondering what you can give them and to have the thing that's most valuable be your time and your energy and your love Mm -hmm. is like really beautiful. And I think that that's why the participants wanted to protect it so much. Sure. And why they were so hesitant to talk to me. And some people didn't, you know, like um, I didn't talk to Sasha Baron Cohen. Like there were just Mm -hmm. like people who wanted to keep it private for themselves because it seems so genuine and i only say it like that is it's a town where you know anna gets up because her project is the project of the moment and you stand up and you're almost like by hollywood law decreed by listing everyone you work Mm -hmm. with and labeling each of them individually as a genius where may or may not be true but like it's sort of the rule but so you know, when you throw those kind of things around long enough, it's like, what does that word really mean anymore? But then here, it seems that when you're like, oh, I love that guy. It's not like, I love that guy because we worked together on that show. It's like, no, like, I genuinely love that guy. Gary's love meant something else to people. You know, Kevin Nealon and Bill Isaacson, the executive of his estate, both talked about walking into Gary's office when they opened it up for the memorial game the weekend after he passed away. And like seeing, you know, Kevin saw a script that he'd given Gary and it was just sitting on his desk. Mm-hmm. And Bill Isaacson saw, you know, it was like, I forget, it was like American Lawyer Magazine or something like that. And there was a profile of him. And, you know, he's like, there were, there were, uh, drink rings on the article. And instead of being like, oh, like, f- him, like for putting drinks on it, he was like, that meant that like Gary wanted it near him and he put it on his desk and he was proud of me. And that meant so much to him. Gary's approval was, Everything. And I mean, the kind of proofs in the pudding, right? Like, look at who was there. Mm-hmm. And like from, you know, like Sasha Baron Cohen was there when he was not Sasha Baron Cohen right. yet. Um, and Chris Henchy, you know, who just did so many movies, like co-founded Funny or Die and did all these amazing movies with Will Ferrell and Adam McKay and other people. But I mean, uh, Suli McCullough uh, got a job writing for The Tonight Show from somebody named Jack Cohen who got a job writing for t- The Tonight Show with Jay Leno through Gary. Mm-hmm. They went to visit uh, – he went with Gary when Gary was performing on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. And Jay said, oh, like, I didn't know you were a writer, Jack. And so he wound up writing for him until the end of becoming the head writer. And then when Obama got the nomination for president, um, they were like, okay, well, we should hire a black writer. We don't have one on staff. And so mm-hmm. they went to NBC's diversity program and there wasn't a black writer in the diversity program. Huh. And so Jack Cohen said, hey, I play basketball with a guy who I think would be good for this. And Suli McCullough got hired. And I mean, that's crazy. And he, you know, he was the only person of color who played in this game, which mm-hmm. is crazy. But he, you know, I asked him about it and he was like, I never thought about that before. And he said, I hate to say it, but it's the real and he said maybe the fact that he was the only per, uh, black person in Gary's game was more diverse than what was going on in the rest of Hollywood. Right. 
Well, it just seems that in the end that it's like with this with this now with Gary passing away a couple of years ago, it just seems like this is something that can never be replaced. Oh yeah. Like that's like the pressure like it's almost like it's a it's like a shooting star, like there it is, it's gone, and it can never be duplicated. I don't think it can. I mean, just first of all, it lasted for 25 years, so it's like... And no one really knew about it. Yeah, nobody knew about it. And I mean, there are still sort of sub-games that mm-hmm. are going on, but they're much smaller. It's not everybody. Um, and, you know, everybody says, like, like we, we need to get one going, you know, like they're, yeah. but it's it's not the same. And, you know, they do think about Gary when they play, and they love it, but... I mean, it's just interesting. There were just these phases to the game. Like, it started out and it was writers and people who were working on uh, Larry Sanders. And then it became this huge, incredibly popular, crazy game where literally Brad Pitt's showing up. And it's just, it kind of gets, like, nutty. And it was sort of, like, that was one of, like, the games in Hollywood. And Mm -hmm. then the other one being Clooney's game. And he actually uh, was with Bruce Grayson, Gary was, and... They saw Clooney backstage at uh, that. Uh, Bruce thought it was a Chris Rock show, mm-hmm. and he was like, "You know, like let's play, let's do it, like let's like face off." And Clooney was like, "We will wipe the floor with you guys. <laughs> we got we got the best pick and rolls in, in, in any amateur game." Um, and like, so it's like that level. And then in the later years, it became this game where it was like these young people, you know, like Alex Rickenbach who directed Ibiza and Zach Schiller and. Um, Brecken Meyer and Jesse Bradford and all these young guys. And then there were people who were there the whole time, mm-hmm. um, who were comedy writers who were just dear friends of his. And so people came and went and there were different phases. You know, Sarah was there almost the whole time. But I mean, the, the, what it meant to them and how much of a loss it is, like Gary, but then the community that Gary created is just kind of irreplaceable. Well, that was definitely lightning in a bottle. And thank you for able to capture that lighting in a bottle with your story. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Anna. Remember to subscribe to Double Truck Stories podcast on the ESPN app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again, and we'll be back soon with more Double Truck Stories podcasts.